Hello, and welcome to another episode of Boundless Body Radio. I'm your host, Casey Ruff, and today we have another amazing guest to introduce you now. Hannah Warren is an artist, writer, and social entrepreneur. She joined Bazooki Group and its initiative, Metabolic Mind, in November 2023 as Mental Health Communications and Advocacy Manager. These organizations are focused on advancing the science of metabolic psychiatry to drive long-term systematic change in the mental health field while equipping patients, families, and clinicians with resources to implement metabolic therapies today. Hannah serves as a volunteer with the Brain Energy Movement, started by former podcast guest Dr. Chris Palmer, to spread awareness of the brain energy theory. Uh, that episode, by the way, was episode 123. We actually recorded it with Dr. Nick Norwitz and Brett Lloyd, who had suffered with many mental health issues. I definitely recommend checking that out back in episode 123. In July of 2021, Hannah started ketogenic therapy and ultimately put her bipolar 1 disorder into complete remission. Today, she actively implements treatments for neurometabolic dysfunction, including ketogenic therapy, intermittent fasting, exercise, and meditation. Hannah's experience has inspired her to devote her career to disseminating the science of metabolic therapies and working to make them a first-line treatment option. In her free time, Hannah is working on writing a book about her experience titled Radiant Beast, the Mitochondrial Pathway. Hannah Warren, what an absolute honor it is to welcome you to Boundless Body Radio. Thank you so much for having me, Casey. I'm really happy to be here and get an opportunity to talk with you. It's such a joy to chat with you. You have gone through the ringer, uh, definitely in your life. I want to actually start with the thing that we closed the introduction with, Radiant Beast. Where did that name come from? I love it. Yeah, so the name is meant to be metaphorical. It was actually the title of a poem that I wrote during my first Manic episode. So it was something that I wrote actually in a full-blown psychotic state. But I think of it metaphorically as at, at the time when I was psychotic, it's kind of funny because I was in a locked psychiatric unit and they kept telling me that I was a flight risk and they wouldn't let me go outside into this courtyard. And when they were telling me I was a flight risk in this psychotic mental space that I was in, I thought I could literally fly away. <laughs> and I had this kind of feeling almost of being part animal uh, during that episode. So it originates from there. I love it. Uh, when I was kind of thinking intentionally about my year 2024, I always try to come up with like a, a word for the year. And the one that I kept landing on was savage. And to me, it, it's kind of a similar word where it, you could think of it as like, you know, being, you know, really harsh or, or whatever. But I think of savage as being something different, doing something different. It could be being kinder to, to people. It could be, you know, doing something physically or, you know, spiritually that's a little bit different. And so I think about radiant beast is kind of the same way. Yeah. And, um, I, I will definitely explore more of the meaning and some stories throughout the books to illuminate what I mean by it a little more, but I think it really is kind of about a balancing that kind of our nature as an animal, but also as an elevated spiritual um, being. Yeah, I absolutely love that. You've already talked about your time in psychiatric hospitals, which I've heard is an absolute nightmare. Let's back up before we get there. You've kind of been a bit of a globetrotter for what I understand. You've been all over the place. Tell us about your life growing up and um, kind of everything leading up to when you started to notice that you had some mental issues. Yeah, so I grew up in a small city out of outside of Chicago, north of Chicago, called Rockford. Um, as a young person, I really loved creative and performing arts. I went to a special magnet school for creative and performing arts. And when uh, I was a teenager, right after I graduated high school, I had the opportunity to become a youth exchange th student through Rotary International, and I got to go to Thailand for a year. And that experience really inspired me to want to 
travel and learn more about other cultures. At the time, you know, I lived with a host family. I learned how to speak Thai, which I have basically forgotten at this point. But when I came home back as a teenager, I was pretty fluent in Thai and decided that I wanted to keep exploring the world. And I applied for a ambassadorial scholarship through Rotary International to study abroad in India. And I fell absolutely in love with Indian culture and decided actually to pursue a degree related to that. So I got my undergraduate degree in South Asian studies and linguistics, and I would travel back and forth to India uh, while I was getting that degree, which was actually at the University of London School of Oriental and African Studies, which is a special program really kind of they're devoted to area studies and they teach a lot of different eclectic languages from all over the world. So I was able to study Hindi literature and everything while I was there, but I would go back and forth to India and eventually became inspired to start a nonprofit there that would empower women through employing them in garment manufacturing. So started a nonprofit social enterprise that's actually still up and running today where the women make athleisure wear products and it's registered as a nonprofit cooperative society in India. It's great to still be involved in that the organization has continued to grow and thrive. But all of that, you know, starting the organization and raising a lot of funds to get it off the ground, all of that happened prior to my illness. And up to that point, you know, people ask if I ever knew that I had mental health issues and really anything that could have been a sign that maybe something was off was not something at all recognizable to me. If anything, it would have been things that I considered positive attributes, you know, more on the spectrum of hypomania. So kind of seeing myself as a very passionate person with a lot of kind of endless energy that I was throwing into this nonprofit organization I started. I just saw myself as a very driven, motivated person. I never thought, well, it seems like you're a little too energetic and maybe this is some form of hypomania that never even occurred to me. Um, It wasn't until I had a full-blown manic psychotic episode at the age of 28 that I knew there was any type of problem. And it really came pretty much out of nowhere. At the time, I was on a full scholarship that I was given by Rotary International to get my master's degree in fashion entrepreneurship. So it was related to the nonprofit I had started in India. Really, they were giving me seed money to get that organization going, but also supporting my education so that I could continue uh, to build that organization. So it was really an exciting time in my life. Felt like I had a bright future. And I was really working very hard as a student, but didn't realize, I guess, that the, the pressure was probably starting to get to me. Possibly one of the things that triggered my illness was just the sense of responsibility about ensuring that this nonprofit would be successful and feeling like, you know, they had invested, Rotary International had invested so much in me and so much in this organization. And um, also, of course, there were a lot of difficult things about traveling back and forth to India and just being, seeing poverty and seeing the discrepancy and then inequity and global disparity. I was, you know, a deep thinker and I guess troubled by, by a lot of those things on many levels. So eventually just the stress caught up with me and I had a full blown psychotic episode. Wow. Well, it's interesting. You mentioned Indian culture. I don't know enough about it, but given the history and everything that's happened in India, that's got to be one of the more complex and complicated systems on the planet. It just seems so complex to me with all the history that they have. And it's interesting that you, you mentioned 
th- those, you know, different brains that, that you don't really recognize that something might be just a little bit off. And it's, it's, we keep hearing this over and over again, that people are born with special gifts, probably evolved with these special gifts that make them more sensitive, people sensitive to migraines or people that have ADHD or all these, all these things. But in our modern world of lights and bells and whistles everywhere, it can, can kind of like flip those special gifts and make them more difficult to manage. We see that a lot with migraine, like I mentioned. So it sounds like that was kind of the case with you. Yeah, absolutely. Wow. Okay. So tell us about that first manic episode. Yeah. Um, so as I mentioned, it came out of nowhere. Nobody, none of my friends or, you know, my mother who had just visited me in London, no one saw indications that something was going wrong. And, um, it happened, it, it, when it happened, it was like I was actually just writing a paper. And I don't know how you were as a student, but it was very common for me in my undergraduate degree that I'd get into a creative flow with an idea and just stay up all night working on a paper. And by morning, it would just synthesize, come together beautifully, and then I would crash and go to sleep. But this time it was like, instead of being able to synthesize my ideas, I just that moment never came. And I just stayed up and stayed up and stayed up and kept working until my thoughts became totally disorganized. And I don't really know how many days I was awake, but it got to the point where I was like, just laying in bed, looking at the wall and feeling like I could see vibrations and started hallucinating and eventually, you know, stumbled out of my apartment where I was living alone and don't necessarily need to go into the whole story, but basically ended up stumbling into a church and eventually being escorted out by the police and taken to an inpatient uh, psychiatric facility where, you know, at the time I was so delusional. Of course, I didn't understand at all that I was sick. I was really just in another world. I think it can be quite hard to describe what psychosis is like to somebody who's never been through something like that. Um, Even me, like I never really understood anything about bipolar disorder and what psychosis is and then going through it. It, it basically like, have you ever heard of, um, lucid dreaming? Yeah. 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 You're kind of awake and like daydreaming almost. Well, yeah, more like you're, you're actually asleep and having a dream, but you become conscious that you're dreaming and you're like, okay, this is a dream. So then you can kind of fly or do anything that you want because you realize that it's a dream. And I, I have had lucid dreams before and it's interesting. Psychosis is almost like the opposite where you're awake and you're interfacing and interacting with the real world, but you're also simultaneously in your own dream world. So I guess I was just so disconnected from reality. I thought maybe I was entering a portal and was going to be able to go through heaven. There was also simultaneously conspiracy theories going on in my mind. So when I got to the psychiatric hospital, I wasn't willing to take medication. Eventually they held me down and injected me with an antipsychotic and at the time, because I had these scary conspiracy theories in my head, I really thought they were murdering me. So as you can imagine, it was a very traumatizing experience. And really, the whole time I was there, I don't think it really clicked or I grasped that I was in a hospital. Maybe towards the tail end, it kind of started to make sense. But it wasn't really until months down the line after the initial onset of that episode that I realized what had happened. Wow. That's so crazy. How long were you in the hospital? Like a month and a half, a month and a half. Oh my goodness. Wow. Yeah. What kind of effect did the medications have? Like, did you notice immediately after getting injected that like you were able to think a little bit more clearly? Oh no, because I mean, I was in this active psychotic state for quite a long time and it took 
a long time to be kind of brought back, anchored back into reality. So even after they injected me with the medications, I mean, at certain points I got sedated and started sleeping again, but I was still hallucinating. I was still not in touch with the reality of my situation. Do you have memories of of that time? Like, can you actively remember that stuff or is it more like blacked out and it's just kind of like here and there, like drifting in and out of sleep, like you said? Yeah, it's interesting because you hear different things from people who have had psychotic episodes and sometimes people can't recollect a lot of their experiences. But there are many moments that I really kind of remember in hyper vivid detail um, because it was such a different type of experience. So I really can remember all of my delusions pretty clearly. I can remember a lot of experiences from the hospital, the way that I was interpreting it the way that things look. And it's interesting now because I can kind of go back and dissever like what was a delusion and what was I imagining and what what really happened. Like, it's interesting that I can do that now in retrospect, whereas at the time I was just not able to um, think rationally in any way. That's fascinating. Did any part of you think that you wouldn't be able to leave at all? Oh, definitely. Definitely. How scary. Was, I mean, it, I mean, it was really being in a hospital. It's, it's like being in an ongoing nightmare. Um, it's kind of interesting. And I think there's a number of reasons why, but my third and hopefully final episode, what I believe is my final episode, you know, knock on wood. Um, I, it, it was really like, it started off more beautiful and light and positive than my other two episodes, which were kind of pretty scary from the onset. But my third episode actually had a lot of beauty into it before I was hospitalized. But then when I was hospitalized, I mean, it's kind of funny, but you have people who put you in a locked unit where it's completely this strange, creepy, sterile environment. You can't get any fresh air. You can't get out into nature. You have these delusional thoughts. And then you have people telling you, you know, why are you so paranoid? You're like, you've locked me up and you're not letting me leave. Why do you think I'm paranoid? I mean, it just, the whole cycle makes it so much worse. Wow. That sounds absolutely terrifying. So what was the discharge process like? Like, how did they decide to let you go? Did they diagnose you with something at that point? Were you heavily medicated? Like, what was it like to actually get out of there? Yeah. um, Well, in my first episode, you know, and that's... quite a while back now, like more than a decade ago. Uh, but from what I remember, you know, they, they did say most likely I had bipolar disorder, but they couldn't be completely sure because first of all, when I, they discharged me, I was still on the manic end of the spectrum and they weren't really sure exactly how a depressive episode would play out. And they also told me that there was a possibility that it was a fluke episode and that I didn't have an ongoing chronic disorder. Um, and when when I was discharged there in London, they actually had like a home care team that helped me transition back to my apartment. And for a while, I thought I was going to just try to stay and complete my degree there. But eventually, I had to come ter- to terms with the reality that I was not functional and I was not the, the same person that I was before. You know, there, it was a very harsh reality I had to face when I um, entered that severe depression that followed in the wake of mania. Luckily, I was able to, you know, because I had a doctor's note and everything, I was able to still complete my degree after I was able to heal. So that's good. Wow. One of the things that really stood with me after reading Brain Energy um, 
from by Chris Palmer was was how difficult it is to make diagnoses, how blurred the lines get between all these different things when it's bipolar, when does it become schizophrenia, when does it become like dementia versus Alzheimer's? It's just so hard to know whether somebody has anxiety, whether they have depression or whether they have bipolar. Like it, it's so difficult to make diagnoses. I don't know how they do it, frankly. Well, and, and honestly, like in terms of the brain energy theory, do the diagnoses like really matter or exist as such kind of the theory, the brain energy theory that it's all caused by metabolic dysfunction of the brain, just like you'd have maybe different symptoms all caused by a cold, like runny nose or a sore throat. You could have metabolic brain dysfunction manifesting in different ways that they might call bipolar disorder or call anxiety, but it's really the same underlying mechanism. Yeah. Yeah. Very well said. So at this point in the story, um, it sounds like you were very depressed coming off of this episode. What was, what was it like after that? Like, I assume you were placed on some medication that was more like, you're going to take this for quite a while or maybe the rest of your life. Yeah. So I was put on a lanzapine after the first episode, they told me that I could try going off in six months just in case it was a fluke to see that um, maybe if it, if it was a fluke, I could actually potentially get better and not need to take the medication. But they're like, if you have another episode, then you'll know for sure you have an ongoing chronic illness. So when I first started taking the med- medication, I was dealing with really severe suicidal ideation, um, something I'd never experienced in my life before that. And it just felt like I'd come back to a life that was completely unfamiliar and foreign to me. It was just like excruciatingly hard to even get out of bed and get dressed every day and just to function. And I couldn't, it was almost just like a compulsive thought that I just wanted to end my life. And there was no rational reason behind it. And this was someone who had, I, Prior to that episode, I had been a pretty happy, upbeat person with a really fulfilling life driven by passion and purpose, but it was all of that just disappeared. I couldn't enjoy anything anymore. Um, And that lasted, I'd say I started to get over it in about a year. I did go off the medication in six months because the side effects were so horrendous for me. I had put on more than 70 pounds um, on olanzapine. And I think it was a combination of factors, you know, a lot of eating to self-soothe, but also, also the medications tend to make you very hungry. And then they also do cause some metabolic damage. So I just rapidly put on so much weight. And once I got off the medication and did commit to trying to improve my quality of life again and exercising a lot and eating healthy in the sense of like whole foods, vegan. At the time, I knew nothing about the ketogenic diet. So I was still eating a lot of, you know, carbs like lentils and sweet potatoes and things like that. Um, but I did manage to lose the weight and start to feel better, start to feel like myself again when I had my second episode. And at that point, having to go through that a second time, going back on the medications, putting on all the weight. It was just so heartbreaking and devastating for me to think, you know, this is just the way that it, that it's going to have to be. I really felt like that it was a trade-off that I had to make and I had no choice but to deal with the side effects and was going to have to be on medication indefinitely if I wanted to stay sane. And, you know, as we talked about, the manic experiences is so nightmare, so frightening that, of course, I I would do almost anything to not have to go through that. So I thought, you know, even if my quality of life is diminished, at least I'll be stable and I won't have to, to go through all of that. 
not the most ideal decision to have to make, is it? It just sounds absolutely terrible. How was, was the second episode more severe about the same as before? I'd say the second episode was about the same. Okay. Did you go back to the hospital? Yes, I was hospitalized uh, for that one as well. I was hospitalized a little, not quite as long, um, but my parents were also in the picture, and maybe that had something to do with why I was released early because my parents were there to support me and everything. So I was only there for, I think, three weeks after that second episode. It's it's really terrible to go back and contemplate that and that you had the suicidal ideation, but frankly, like you can understand why you would be having that, like to live that life and to have to make those decisions, like do I choose this, which is really terrible, or this, which is really terrible and causes lots of suffering. Like, yeah, of course you would be having suicidal thoughts. It's awful to say, but that's totally true. Yeah, absolutely. I didn't, I didn't feel like myself at all anymore. It just felt like I got thrown into some life that, that wasn't my own. And I was really grieving. I felt like a part of me had died and I'd never get her back. And honestly, I felt like I had brain damage after that. It was just really hard for me to focus or think about things the way I used to. And I was someone who, you know, loved academics. I, had started a nonprofit. I mean, I liked challenging things. I had an active thought life. I like to read everything. And, um, after that, I just felt like a fragment of myself. I felt like I wasn't the same person any longer. You would have to mourn that loss of the life that you had loved and grown for yourself for sure. I can definitely understand that. So, so after being discharged that time, I'm assuming it kind of continued that way. Was there more depression? How long was it before you actually started seeking a different route of treatment? Yeah. So after that second episode, it was again about a year. It took me about an entire year to get over the suicidal ideation and just really, I mean, at that point it was just like, I'd wake up and feel like I hated everything about my life and I couldn't enjoy anything. And all I wanted to do was end my life. And it's really quite miraculous that I survived um, which is why I've become so passionate about promoting metabolic therapies because I ba- barely survived what I went through. But eventually that did subside. On the, I was still on the same medication, olanzapine and antipsychotic. After about a year, I got over the suicidal ideation, but really just had this very kind of numb, sedated existence. I'm, I was able to work and function and support myself. So I've always lived independently and I'm lucky in that regard, because some people suffer traumatic things like these and go from being, you know, a high performing person with a great career to literally being disabled. I've seen that and it's absolutely heartbreaking. Luckily, I was able to still function, but at the same time, I didn't feel I had any quality of life and all of my passion and creativity was gone. And I just kind of got through each day. I worked my job. I came home. I often went to bed ridiculously early, just was always tired, always felt fatigued. Um, and then you asked kind of from there, how did I end up finding different modalities, right? And moving down this path, more holistic path and eventually coming across the work of Dr. Palmer. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the story's getting pretty dark. I hope we have some like light at the end of the tunnel. Obviously you're still <laughs> here with us it's today. All light after there. <laughs> I mean, it's really funny sometimes too, because this part of my past is so distant. If I wasn't sharing my story, I can tell you right now, I wouldn't even think about it anymore. Really? That that misery is so far from who I am now. I wake up every day grateful. I have a wonderful community, a life full of joy, creativity, meaning, 
everything. Um, but of course, I'm driven to share my story because I know there's countless people suffering. And it does, you know, it's painful sometimes because you have to conjure up these things you'd rather not remember. But I guess I basically feel that until this becomes mainstream knowledge, it's really my responsibility as a compassionate person to share this for the benefit of others. I just thank you. Thank God there are people like you out there that are willing to share their story because this could be very triggering and traumatic to go back and revisit these really dark times. So yeah, we're, we're sometimes it jumps out to you how strange it is to make yourself remember this because recently I was in Chicago with my niece and nephew and my parents. We went to one of these beautiful light shows that I love through the holidays where they project these amazing lights on the trees and you walk for a mile. It's like one of my favorite, um, festivities for the holidays. And it, it was just so beautiful. And I was so grateful and enjoyed it. And then we went into the hotel. It was one of those hotels with a big courtyard and one of those huge glass elevators. And I was preparing to go on a podcast. So kind of through my head, I was thinking about my life story and what I might share. And we got to the, you know, where we were staying, which was really high up. And I looked down from the courtyard and I remembered staying there before with my family. And there's no way I could be up that high and not think about jumping. You know, oh my goodness, and to think here I am having this beautiful moment with my family, so grateful, and to think, you know, have that memory come to me and think about being in that awful state of mind, but that there's still people who are who are dealing with that right now. Oh. Yeah, wow. Well, thank you for sharing that. Yeah, let's uh, let's get some light. <laughs> let's get some light. Okay, now this is the fun part this. because this is chapter two. <laughs> Turn the page. Now it's all beautiful from here. Oh, so, um, well, like the way that my life started to transform, I started working for a nonprofit organization that was uh, focused on self-development programming. So they taught a lot of things about holistic health, a lot of creative arts classes. So my mind was just opening again. And I was remembering some of those last parts of uh, lost parts of myself, starting to do things like meditation and exercise and being inspired to want to make art again. Slowly, I just started to feel revitalized. And somewhere along that point, around 2019, 2020, so, you know, a Part of my journey too, I had started to do a lot of negative coping habits because I was just so unhappy. So a lot of like drinking and smoking, but I got to that point, 2019, um, right before 2020, I started wanting to change my life and do anything that I could to improve my quality of life. So I decided to give up drinking. I decided to start exercising. I was meditating. I started to feel so much better. And then I found fasting and I started to do extended and intermittent fasting. And all of a sudden I was starting to feel like a new person. I was just really starting to feel revitalized. And at that point it occurred to me, you know, I've been on this medication stable for about seven years. Maybe I should try going off of it again. Maybe I really don't have bipolar disorder anymore. And, you know, I want to say very clearly, I shouldn't have done this the way that I did because nobody should just go off medication. It wasn't a responsible or logical way to do it. I should have sought help and tried to taper. I didn't do any of that. I went off of my medication um, and did end up having a third episode. That being said, one thing that really stands out to me is that my third episode was far less severe than my other two 
which I think is really a sign and kind of evidence that the brain energy theory is true and that some of the fasting I was doing had already started to heal my body and my mitochondria um, because I had done quite a number of extended fasts, but I had not found ketogenic therapy, which, you know, mechanistically works as a fasting mimicking diet. So it can kind of prolong that healing state. So you can imagine if I was doing even extended fasting and intermittent fasting, it's not continuous the way being in ketogenic therapy is in terms of um, the cellular processes that are healing. Uh, But it definitely had made a difference. And my third episode was less severe. Right after coming out of the hospital, though, after that third episode, I think it was really scary for me. I had always thought, can I possibly survive a third episode? After you hear all I've been through, I just thought, I can't go through this all, all again. You know, after just starting to feel healthy again, can I put on all that weight? Can I go back to this numb existence Can I be asked to make such a devastating choice to have to give up my quality of life to maintain my sanity? It seemed brutally unfair, and I just didn't want to do it. I did not want to go back on the medication. And at that point, you know, I'd only been back on olanzapine for a few weeks that I was put on in the hospital. Um, I was only hospitalized for two weeks with that third and final episode. So at that point, I decided, I think especially from the inspiration from the nonprofit I was working at, seeing more holistic options, I thought I really need to explore. Maybe there's some alternatives out there that I'm just not aware of. So I just started researching anything and everything I could, came across a lot of different things about supplement protocols and this, that, and the other thing. But when I found Dr. Chris Palmer's work, it immediately resonated with me because of my own experience with fasting. And this was before brain energy was even out. So I just came up upon his website But really, the brain energy theory spoke to me. And from my own already personal experience, I was optimistic that the ketogenic diet, ketogenic therapy could make a difference for me. That being said, it's exceeded all my expectations because at that point, I had no idea that bipolar disorder was a condition you could put into full remission, which is my understanding today. And it has been an absolutely transparent formative experience. And I never thought I would be liberated from this illness in the way that I am now. It's now been more than two and a half years and I've been using metabolic therapies as my sole form of treatment, absolutely medication-free. Again, I have to put in a little disclaimer just because, you know, we're still learning a lot about this. This is emerging science. It the ketogenic diet, ketogenic therapy appears to be a cornerstone intervention that can be transformative for many people with different types of mental illness. That being said, there's still a lot to learn and it appears there may be some non-responders as well as some people who may need to do metabolic therapies more as a life-enhancing adjunctive treatment and may not be able to get entirely off of their medications. And if someone is trying to get off medications, they need to work with a clinician and taper it and do it safely. Yes. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for that disclaimer. So important to keep in mind, Nicole Laurent, who's also a keto counselor says the same thing. You have to be very careful. I do just have to say, I think it's very interesting that knowing all that you still were able to do that on your own. That said, we're not recommending that for everybody. It's, it's interesting that at least in your case, it can, can it be done? Like it, was done. It could have been done. So I think it's interesting. Um, for some, you know, I was in a, I was in a place of desperation when, when I did it on my own. And I will say as a little bit of self-defense that I did try really hard to find 
anyone with training in metabolic therapies to help me, but that was before brain energy came out. It was before metabolic mind had all these amazing resources. So there was very little information out there. I tried my best. I did continue to see a counselor and I was open with my doctor, you know, about what I was trying to do. So I did try to at least have people supervising me and my family knew what I was doing. And unfortunately, there's still some people have to make the best out of limited resources. It's still challenging to find a metabolic psychiatrist. That being said, because of organizations like Metabolic Mind, the work Nicole's doing, the work Dr. Palmer's doing, um, slowly this movement really is starting to spread and take off. And there's a lot more clinicians being trained right now. Thank God. So yeah, this came up in our conversation with Chris, who is kind of saying, you know, ketogenic diets are not the easiest for people to do. They're pretty challenging. And we kind of went round table and, and Dr. Norwitz and I and Brett Lloyd, who'd suffered through so much mental anguish in his life. For all of us, we were like, well, it's a lot easier to do a ketogenic diet than it is to deal with whatever we were dealing with before. For me, it was like anxiety. Like I didn't realize I had anxiety until I, you know, cut a bunch of carbohydrates out of my diet and my anxiety fell out for Nick. He suffered with digestive issues for Brett again, deep, deep, deep depression. And so if you're desperate enough, if you're suffering enough, eating keto is really not that hard. You know what I mean? It's it. you'll yeah. figure it out. You would say it's a piece of cake, but that's not really the right. <laughs> it's a, it's a piece of <laughs> steak. About it. It's a piece, piece of steak. steak. There you I go. can't do that one either. I'm going to have to think of my own version. <laughs> <laughs> yes, you do. It definitely will. Uh, okay. So, so two lay people, obviously, um, you know, you understand this work pretty well. I think I grasp it a little bit, but let's, let's just give the audience a, a brief kind of summary of what the metabolic theory behind metabol uh, the, the, these mental disorders as, as Chris presents it in, and brain energy. Yes. Um, thank you for saying how Chris presents it in brain energy, because right now with it being an emerging field, it's interesting to hear a lot of clinicians have different hypotheses and different mechanisms that they believe make this an effective form of therapy. Um, I think there's no doubt that for a lot of people switching the fuel source of their brain from glucose to ketones has an immediate impact and makes a real difference. It's an optimal fuel source for a lot of people. And whether that has to do with insulin resistance in the brain, I think we're discovering more all the time. But in terms of Chris Palmer's work, the theory that resonates with me is that it has to do with mitochondrial dysfunction. And that when you do ketogenic therapy long-term to treat a severe mental illness, you're slowly repairing your mitochondria. It's an ongoing lengthy process. Um, and I think my own experience is real evidence of that working because not only did I get those immediate benefits from switching fuel sources to ketones, which really helped me cope with my depression, it made it so that my depression was much less severe and only lasted a couple of months compared to that disabling suicidal depression I experienced in the past. But also throughout this entire process, you know, more than a two and a half years now, I just feel that I continue to optimize and feel better and better all the time. And I think it was most kind of impactful and clear after a year of ketogenic therapy. It felt like I was a really a new person. But uh, according to the brain energy theory, it's that cellular process of mitochondrial repair, mitophagy, and mitochondrial biogenesis. So mitophagy, meaning that you're your body is getting rid of those dysfunctional mitochondria. And then at the same time, having mitochondrial biogenesis, 
producing those new healthy mitochondria that can repopulate and make your metabolism functional again. That was very well explained. I really appreciate that. I really like theories that are unifying, that seem to wrap things up pretty well, explain multiple things and multiple mechanisms and be the answer for several different problems that we have. I think oftentimes you come up with a hypothesis and it's like, yes, this checks this box, but then you have like three or four other questions that seem like they don't match or it's a paradox now, or it just doesn't quite make sense. And Chris's theory on you know, about metabolism and mental health for me is unifying. It makes so much sense on so many levels. And like you said earlier, it, it almost gets to the point of like, maybe we could enter a world someday where it doesn't matter how we're diagnosing some of these things. What, what is the difference between anxiety and bipolar? Like it, those lines and how we define them are so blurred. Like we said, like maybe this could be something that helps everybody. And again, it's all unifying. It makes sense on every level you can find. It's hard to find holes in this theory. Yeah, absolutely. I couldn't agree more. Wow. And I think, you know, either way, this should be a major push for psychiatry to move toward precision psychiatry. I think the biggest thing I'm passionate about is like, we should not be failing people. We need to search for root physiological causes of mental illness. Um, these people with mental illness should not be written off. The brain is part of the body. I believe something is happening and it pe people deserve to have a treatment that that works on that root cause and allows people to actually heal and get better. And um, I think it's interesting too, right now, the way the mental health care system works, you in theory could have a number of underlying root causes related to metabolism and get an identical DSM-5 diagnosis. These can be really arbitrary labels. So you can have someone who multiple people who are diagnosed with bipolar disorder, but actually have different root problems. And what we need to be able to do is find a way to actually not just put a Band-Aid on things, not just try to cover up symptoms so that people go through lifelong, you know, have to deal with a chronic condition. Instead, we should be saying, how do we address that root cause and create healing and remission? I love that. And a point you made on another podcast that I really loved and appreciated is their safety and efficacy. And we already know that this diet is safe. You can try this. If you're listening to this, you don't need to ask permission. You don't need to wait until the diet starts on Monday, like every other diet. Like you could start at your next meal and eat a lower amount of carbohydrates and see what that feels like. And maybe it'll work and maybe it won't, but this is not prohibitive and it is very safe. You could start right now if you want. Um, again, one little disclaimer, just because I, I feel like it's a responsibility to do that. There are some cases where people can become hypomanic or even manic when they switch to a ketogenic diet, just because it is such a powerful physiological intervention. So there is some caution that people should take in terms of working with a clinician. And like I said, even if you can't find a metabolic psychiatrist, at least having your care team kind of monitor you, there may be things people need to look for in terms of especially making sure they're getting enough sleep and everything that actually that can be impacted by the ketogenic diet. But I think that's just another demonstration of how it's a very real intervention. And that's something I need to 
you know, kind of explain to people a lot when they think that what I'm doing is just simple, straightforward, common sense about diet and nutrition. And you have to say, no, this is a really powerful intervention that works at the, you know, on a biochemical level, at the cellular level. Yeah, I appreciate that caveat. Thank you for adding that in. Practically speaking, for you, how difficult was it for you to start on a ketogenic diet? Yeah. And I, I should say, I want to make sure, sorry, I'm going to uh, go back to what we were saying before. I do want to say, though, that it is true that it is a pretty safe intervention. And like you said, with the with the evidence we have around epilepsy, people can do this long term and it is safe. It's just that monitoring that's needed. So your point was really good as well. I wasn't trying to say that it wasn't, but just want to make sure that people exercise caution. And so you were asking about how difficult it was for me to... Yeah. More on the practical yeah. side of things, you know, making uh, diet change yeah. is hard. And, and again, most like, like you were alluding to, like most people can or don't really need to do it overnight. You could try with your next meal, but you don't need to make such a severe jump if you're eating, you know, today, 400 grams of carbohydrates or whatever. But for you, especially yeah. eating more plant-based, was it, was it difficult for you to get enough fat, get enough protein, or how was it practically to, to get onto ketogenic? Oh, it's kind of funny. I think because I had done so much intermittent and extended fasting, I had really developed my willpower because I feel like there's something very empowering about being able to do a prolonged fast, you know, three days a week, two weeks. Um, when you're able to do that, you just really feel like you can do anything. So the ketogenic diet felt very simple <laughs> compared to that. Have you ever done any extended fasting just out of curiosity? I personally never really have. I've seen people do it and it's, it's really, um, quite interesting. Um, one guy in particular was doing it during like an entire week and we would strength train together and it would be Tuesday and Friday that we would train Tuesday after starting on Sunday, he'd be pretty hungry by Friday. He was not hungry and he would set PRs on his lifts. It was remarkable. Yeah, that's, that's really interesting with fasting is like you, you do lose your hunger after a certain point of time. For me, usually it's about 24 hours and that the hunger starts to <laughs> subside. Um, but it, I will say it was difficult in the sense of being a vegetarian. Of course, it did feel restrictive at first and just trying to figure out kind of what my staples were going to be. And um, socially, it's not the most amazing thing being vegetarian keto, because often you'll go to restaurants, there's not a lot you can eat, or just if you're at a work party or something like that, it might be a little restrictive, but at the same time, I was so motivated because of what this diet, how much it enhanced my life and this form of treatment that it was a very small price to pay for the benefits that I was getting. And absolutely, if I would have known um, at the beginning of my diagnosis that this was an option, I would have chosen that right away instead of ha having to deal, like you said, I mean, all the terrible things people go through with side effects and symptoms of their illness, the idea of having to exercise a little discipline and eat differently, just really, <laughs> there's not really a dilemma when you have to choose between those things. I mean, being at the point where you don't even want to live versus giving up cupcakes, you know, it's I don't know where there's a hard choice in that. Yeah, that makes sense. How difficult was the jump from being uh, vegan to being vegetarian? Was that terribly difficult for you? Uh, no, not at all. So my reason for being, you know, vegan when I started is just, it's not ethical in the sense of like having a moral judgment on others for eating animals. It's just actually when I was 
only three years old and it registered that I was eating an animal. It really viscerally grossed me out. And I told my parents, I just, I'm not eating animals. And they humored me. They thought it was a phase. They thought I'd grow out of it. And I never did. So that's just a lifelong thing. And it's funny because now I have so many friends who are carnivore and they're always teasing me. I never thought I'd be friends with so many carnivores as a vegetarian, but that's the irony of life. But I have zero moral judgment on others, but it is for me just kind of feels wrong to eat animals. And then uh, for me personally, and then the idea of factory farming grosses me out. So that's why I was vegan. Uh, When I realized, you know, I could just eat family farm eggs where with happy chickens and incorporate them and how much it would make my diet feel more nutritious and satiating and made ketogenic baking a lot better as well, because vegan keto baked goods are like basically the worst thing I've ever tasted. (laughs) (laughs) That's great. So it was, it was, if it felt okay for you to add the eggs back in or add add them in for the first time. Oh, and I love eggs. Eggs are just a a total staple for me now as well. They make following this diet definitely a lot, a lot easier. That's great. What about fat sources? Was it difficult for you to get enough fat to, to be in a state of ketosis? It sounds like you didn't need to go overboard to get the fat since your body was already adapted from all the fasting, but. Yeah. And also, you know, when I started, I still was significantly overweight, you know, still had quite a bit of weight to lose. So my body had plenty of its own fat stores to use as well. So I didn't necessarily need to eat as much dietary fat as somebody who is already slim and doesn't want to lose weight when they start. So it's, it was kind of a gradual mind shift for me to start incorporating more and more fat as I did lose the weight. Uh, yeah. And then I'm guessing sources would be like coconut, avocado, avocado oil, olive oil, the kind of fats that come from fruits versus, you know, we know the terrible, you know, fats that come from seeds, seed oils, vegetable oils, that kind of thing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And knowing your so history- I do coconut oil, fat bombs and all that kind of stuff. I yeah. do enjoy now. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. And we know a lot of people who are plant-based vegetarian, vegan, who are eating, you know, Oreos and chips and like you could eat a lot of processed food. And that doesn't sound like that was ever you, you were eating whole foods. No. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So my ketogenic diet has been whole foods oriented. I'm, uh, I do eat minimally processed tofu, but I don't regularly eat like fake meat or cheese or anything like that. That's very occasional for me. I just eat real whole foods. I eat a ton of vegetables, ton of eggs. I like to make creamy fatty dressings. I do eat quite a bit of, you know, nuts and peanut butter and that kind of thing yeah. as well. So a little bit of berries. Gotcha. Yeah. Well, we were talking and actually, about- it's made cooking more enjoyable actually now in a way too, because you're limited. It's easier to choose what you want to eat. <laughs> and, um, I do feel like so many people get this with the ketogenic diet that you feel so satiated. So it's kind of helped heal my relationship with food. Um, I don't eat it in a way to self-soothe. It's not as addictive. I just eat when I'm hungry, but it means I'm more present and can just enjoy eating more. So I'm still kind of a foodie. I like, um, because I've lived abroad too, I love ethnic foods. I love spices. So I, I enjoy my relationship food a lot more now. Yeah. I see it all the time when people come to this way of eating, even we, things we know about eating disorders and, and you would think putting somebody on an eating that has an eating disorder on a very restrictive, what looks like a very restrictive diet, like a keto diet would not work. And we've seen amazing case studies and all kinds of people out there that are actually doing that. So that's really wonderful. You and I were talking a little bit offline about different movement things. I know you love to jog. What we're learning about exercise 
it's so interesting to me. It's really shifted in the last like five years or so to exercise is, is amazing for the body and amazing for physique or whatever your health. And, and it doesn't really do much for the brain to now, like, I don't even know that it does that much for even things like weight control. I think it's way more potent for, um, the brain. And, and I think that's so important for exercise. So in what ways do you like to move and how has movement enhanced your recovery? Yeah. So I do love jogging. And for me, jogging is my go-to de-stressor. I just love to jog outside in scenic places. Actually, it's the reason I bought my house not far from the river so that I could jog to the bike path. And when it's nice outside, which it is not right now in the Chicago area, it is quite frigid. <laughs> but when it's when it's beautiful out, I just love being in scenic areas, just breathing in the fresh air and kind of it's a meditative practice for me, a way that I can think and clear my head. I also think since as part of my metabolic therapies, completely giving up alcohol or anything like that, I'm really kind of addicted to the runner's high. That's how I feel good. That's where I get my endorphins. That's what I'm going to do for fun. I go jogging with friends. It's, it can be a bonding thing. Um, I, I also do like some light yoga and stretching just helps me to feel grounded and em embodied in a very positive way, but I definitely have made it a goal this year to get more into strength training. Like you said, I realized there's so many benefits. There was actually a really interesting metabolic mind interview with Brett, uh, Dr. Brett Schur, our director and, um, Martin Picard, who's, uh, mitochondrial psychobiologist, if that's like not the coolest title I've ever heard. Um, he's an amazing scientist and he was talking about mitochondria and he was talking about um, how muscle has more mitochondria. So for me also, that's an ideal I, idea that if I can, it's another form of mitochondrial biogenesis. I feel like if I can build my muscles, I'll have even more mitochondria, which is this idea of kind of upping my voltage. I think when I think about wanting to do strength training, I just want to have that optimum flow of energy. And I don't want to get greedy at the same time because like life is already so good. But then I'm also afraid of sometimes we plateau. And I think it's so important to have a growth mindset. And just because life gets great, why can't you keep honing and keep improving on something that's already amazing? It's funny. We talked about Nicole Laurent, who actually is the one who connected us. And I love her. We were at a conference together and there was this amazing dance party. We were dancing together. We believe it. It was at a conference, a lot of like neurologists getting down and we were having so much fun, but I was chatting with Nicole and told her, you know, sometimes I wonder, am I getting greedy? Because I keep thinking about optimizing in all these different ways, but I'm already so happy. And she just said, no, you should be greedy with your brain because that is everything. That is your control center. That is how you process and interpret the whole world is like the one thing that matters most. And she's like, be as greedy as you want to be. And wow. I, I love that. And I think about that all the time. I'm like, why not keep enhancing my experience of life? And I love that. I'm so jealous you've gotten to hang out with Nicole in person. I, I just, <laughs> from what she's I know, awesome. from what I know about her, if there is a dance party within like a five mile radius, she's going to sniff it out. Is that a fair statement to say? <laughs> Absolutely. She, she danced a lot at that conference. It was in San Diego. It was so much fun. And that was actually the first time I met her, but she felt like such a kindred spirit uh, and yeah, no. And I like to dance. I like to dance as well. I think that's just 
so much fun. People should dance more. Yeah, I agree. And and what knowing what we know about movement and brain health, not only the physical health, but also that brain health. I think about you running, you know, along the river, maybe you're seeing colors and trees and, and birds and animals and all the mental stimulation that that gives you. No wonder you're feeling like you're addicted to it. I, I think that's a wonderful way to move. That's great. Tell us about your work with Bazooki Group and what it's like to have your career be helping people with mental health now. Yeah, so I actually just recently started at the end of November. I got into this field originally just as a volunteer for Dr. Palmer. Um, that was about November of 2022 that I joined his small group of volunteers who were just kind of helping come up with a plan to raise awareness of the brain energy theory. And that was a wonderful experience for me. And I became so passionate about this movement. It was really connecting to him, I think, because that was right before brain energy came out. And that's when it started to register. And I started to understand that the ketogenic diet was not just a path for me to control my symptoms and be able to stay off medication, but he started to use this word remission. I'm like getting chills just now thinking about the first time I started using that word and saying that we're like remission. I'm in remission from metabolic brain dysfunction, like no longer saying I have bipolar disorder. And it's a complete 180 has absolutely transformed my sense of self and my hopes for the future and the way that I've been able to get my life back. So being a part of that group and realizing the impact that this science could have on millions of lives, I just knew that I eventually wanted to make this part of my career because I became obsessed. And basically I was working as marketing and development director for a nonprofit hospice, a beautiful organization, but almost all of my free time, free time was going to volunteering and working, doing stuff for metabolic therapies because I, I couldn't think about anything else. So having a chance to actually now make my passion, my profession and work at metabolic mind and bazooki group is a complete dream come true. I wake up every day grateful that this is my life now and that I get to be out there spreading this critical message because it really is life-changing. And this field is growing exponentially. I'm meeting more and more people all the time with miraculous healing stories. And I think this will become mainstream. We're pushing to also make it eventually a first-line treatment that clinicians will offer to patients. I just think about how much pain and suffering I could have avoided if I was given this option straight away instead of having to suffer through so many years. So I just want to do everything I can to get that message out there, especially to those young people after their first episode, their first diagnosis, you know, helping them to have a way to recover and heal early on. And what a better, more hopeful message. And instead of telling someone you're going to have to manage this chronic illness, it's going to diminish your quality of life, you know, but you'll be okay. You're, you'll survive versus it might be tough for a while and you're going to have to have some discipline. But if you follow these protocols and you do metabolic therapies, you can put your illness into remission and heal and go on to live a happy, healthy life. I love that. And that's, the message we want to get out there. And it's beautiful to be a part of the movement and the work that we're doing. I love that. We're both funding the science. So the Bazooki group is funding the science, the randomized controlled trials, the research, the pilots that are needed for clinicians to say this is an evidence-based treatment. We know that it will take time and this is a paradigm shift and not every clinician is eager to learn about this or open-minded, but eventually having the science to back this up should help make 
make it possible to offer it as a first-line treatment. But then, of course, Metabolic Mind is the public-facing arm is all about providing the maximum amount of resources to patients, families, and clinicians now so that people can implement these therapies if they're not willing to wait like I was not willing to wait. I think it's forgivable still at this point, if you haven't heard of the Bazooki Bazooki group, excuse me, and and the Bazooki family, um, they, they came on the scene quick, right? I had never heard of them. And then all of a sudden they seemed like they were everywhere, but the work that family is doing is so inspiring and they are really moving the needle very, very quickly. It's not going to be very much longer. I'm hoping that it's not like a household name with a lot of people when they think about mental health, they're, they're, they're incredible. Absolutely. I mean, it's really because of their efforts that metabolic psychiatry is even recognized as a cohesive field. And like you said, it it was so quick because their son, Matt, um, who had bipolar one disorder as well, and he is also in remission doing phenomenal. Um, he had a more treatment resistant version of bipolar. So they tried like over 29 medications, no matter what he tried, he was just not getting better. And then within about four months of ketogenic therapy, he was himself again. And now he's able to to work and is just doing beautifully. So that inspired them to start. And Matt actually started ketogenic therapy in um, January of 2021, and I started in the summer of 2021, so I was just behind him, and I had no idea this was like I was on the verge of this cutting-edge field and all of this wave was going to occur. It's still kind of incredible to me. It seems like sheer luck that I came upon this when I did in the way that I did. Um, but but their work really has unified. This is a field brought together a bunch of researchers, scientists, clinicians who are working in their own silos, but bringing them together to show that there is community, there is a movement. I truly believe it's just a matter of time. It's more how do we expedite this movement? I think it's inevitable that people are going to recognize this as a valid form of treatment, but it's just trying, recognizing the urgency. They're literally lives at stake right now, as we know, with the suicide rates, one in five people in the U.S. suffering with a mental illness, there's a lot of people who can't afford to wait. So I think we're just doing everything we can to figure out how to amplify this message and reach as many as po- people as possible with hope as quickly as possible. Yeah. Well, on that note of urgency, as much as I do not want to ask you this question to close out, I think it's really important. And I I don't believe you got this letter personally, but I think the group got the letter from somebody who wrote in about their son um, and, and the mom encouraging you and the work that you guys do. I'm probably going to get a little emotional here, but would you mind sharing um, the contents of that letter? Yeah. Um, I, I get emotional every time I think about this as well. And actually very soon I'm going to meet with Julie King in person. Um, we've connected virtually. That's the mother of Andrew King. And, um, she's just a phenomenal person, um, to think about someone who has to face such deep grief. And she lost her son, Andrew, who, was an absolutely incredible person in the contents of the letter, you know, she linked to his obituary obituary and talked about the kind of young man that he was. He was incredibly intelligent. He almost got a perfect score on his SATs and he was a volunteer for Habitat for Humanity, the kind of person who just wanted to help others, a very sensitive person, 
um, was diagnosed with schizoaffective disorder. And I think the really tragic thing to me is that he had started on the path to do metabolic therapies, but couldn't, you know, there's a whole thing that I cannot get into about all the way that his medication was mishandled and some of the medications that he was on. And he didn't get a chance to get on this path to remission and ended up dying by suicide. And I think what's so heartbreaking about it is, you know, of course, for anybody to lose a loved one like that is a grief and pain you can't even imagine, you know, the loss to his family, the incredible person that he was, but also all that he could have offered the world that's lost to us now. And that he could have had hope and he just didn't have the support in place. And I think it's just, he was so close, you know, and I think, I think in a few years, I'm going to do everything I can. I know Bazooki Group, Metabolic Mind, we're going to do everything we can. Chris, Dr. Chris Palmer is going to do everything he can. We want to change this so that people can find the help that they need. But he was a few, you know, years behind in that. And it's it's too late. Well, I really appreciate you sharing that story. And, and I know it's not very pleasant to talk about and is highly emotional, but that's how important this message is. And I'm so grateful for you and for your journey and everything that you've gone through and that you've dedicated literally your life to now getting that message out. And just so grateful for people like Chris Palmer and Dr. Georgia Ede and uh, the Bazuki family and all these people who are, um, you know, changing the conversation out there because you're right. Like if you want to wait around for the randomized control trials, it's going to be a while and there's going to be a lot of suffering and death until then. And this is something that Again, people can try and you've made it really practical and gave us a lot of really great information. So thank you, Hannah, so very much for sharing your story. Thank you for coming on today, explaining some of the science behind metabolic therapies for mental health. Where would you like people to go to find you to connect with you and your work? Yeah, thank you so much for having me on and helping to spread the spread awareness, spread the word about metabolic therapies it means so much to us and really is going to change lives so people can find more information at metabolicmind.org we have a lot of resources there for patients families and clinicians and we actually just uh, launched an updated website as well which if you're a fan of beautiful branding like i am you'll like it because it's very fresh rejuvenating light colors and feels very hopeful hopeful just like our mission uh, i love it that's great i actually didn't know that it's awesome yeah please take a look I, it's, it looks great and um we're always looking for feedback too this is an ongoing process and we really just want to provide as many resources as possible that people will find helpful on this journey so we're always looking for people to reach out with questions or share some ideas about resources they think would be helpful. Amazing. We'll be sure to link that. Are there any other personal like social media pages you want to leave out there or just leave it to that? Oh, um, if you, if people want to connect with my personals, um, I have a website, radiantbeast.com as well, which is where I'm kind of slowly 
developing my book and the concept for my book. And mostly that will link to also articles that I'm publishing on the Metabolic Mind blog. Awesome. We'll link that as well. And just like this episode had some dark moments, there's also a lot of light that is shining through and you are one of those lights. So thank you, Hannah, so very much again for all of the work you've done. And thank you for your passion and energy to share this message with the world. We need it. Um, we need to push it out there as soon as possible. So thank you so very much. And thank you for taking time to be on our show today. We really appreciate you. Thank you so much. It was an honor to be here. It was an honor to host you. And this has been another episode of Boundless Body Radio. Thank you so very much for continuing to listen to Boundless Body Radio. As 2023 has come to a close and we're starting another new year in 2024, I always try to reflect on not only the direction that we want to go in the future, but also how much we have grown in this last year. Our podcast has now generated well over 400,000 downloads from all over the world, and it's all thanks to fantastic listeners like yourself. I hope you are as excited for the new year as we are around here. The lineup of guests that we have coming up is absolutely staggering, and we're always striving to bring you the best content from the most amazing people in health, nutrition, and wellness. Remember that you can always head on over to our website to book a complimentary 30-minute session with us at myboundlessbody.com. On our homepage, there is a book now button where you can select a time to speak with us about your health and fitness plan, especially for the new year. We've absolutely loved chatting with so many of you out there to bounce ideas off each other and try to come up with plans to help you achieve specific goals. And seriously, I really do mean this. Even if it's just to say hello and introduce yourself, we absolutely love connecting with our listeners in the community. Be sure to check out our YouTube channel as well if you want to watch these full interviews and also shorter interviews on more specific topics that are taken from these interviews. We've gotten really great feedback over there, and it's also a really fun way to interact with people who comment. We read and reply to every single YouTube comment we get, so be sure to subscribe to our channel and leave as many comments as you like to keep the conversation going. And of course, if you haven't already, please leave us a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts. It really is the best way to make sure that the podcast gets out to more listeners. Your five-star ratings and reviews are the best way to support us here at Boundless Body and to support the podcast at Boundless Body Radio really only takes a moment and it's very meaningful to us. Cheers to 2024 and thank you again for listening to Boundless Body Radio.